Welcome to In Loving Recollection. This is your pal Brent. During the summer of 1990, when I was seven years old, I took a trip with my grandparents to the North Georgia mountain town of Hawassi. Looking back, I've come to realize how significant this trip was. While we were up there, my grandfather and I spent a good portion of the time fishing, and on one particular day, we caught quite a bit, or at least that's how I remember it. I do recall that every time we'd catch a fish, I'd say, Granddaddy, we're going to have a good dinner tonight, and I feel like I said that a lot that day. So after we had caught a good amount, we carried our bucket containing the fish up to our cabin. My grandfather selected the largest fish from the lot, laid it flat on a tree stump, and chopped its head off in front of me. Its mouth was still moving even after its head had been separated from its body, and I, a sensitive little boy, swore that I saw a tear come out of its eye. Needless to say, I lost my shit. It really upset me. This was probably the first time that I really made the connection that the food that I eat was once a living thing. I mean, I knew, but I guess I didn't really think about how these living things actually became food. The whole thing suddenly felt very wrong. Going forward, how was I going to be able to enjoy this type of food without thinking about death? I did not eat any fish that night, nor would I ever again. And ten years later, when I was seventeen, I stopped eating meat altogether, partly to impress this girl I had a crush on, but also because the guilt that I first felt when I was seven towards that poor fish never left me. The whole fishing experience, I would one day come to realize, also taught me a valuable lesson about life, and that even the sweetest moments, such as a little boy spending time with his grandfather, can have a certain air of darkness. I would also like to note that it was on this same trip that I heard the news that the Atlanta Braves had traded my beloved Del Murphy to the Philadelphia Phillies, and I haven't cared about baseball since. And yes, this does include the 1995 Braves that won the World Series. Could not have cared less. Like I said, even the sweetest moments can have a certain air of darkness. Suffering and loss are omnipresent. It's a truth about the human experience, and a sentiment that artists have been expressing for hundreds of years. It has also inspired some really great pop music. To me... Nothing really beats a catchy pop song with lyrics that are bleak as hell. The combination of the sweet with the sour is a contradiction that I've always really appreciated, as it seems to me to be a pure expression and celebration of the absurdity of it all. And that's why for many years now, I've been such a fan of the music of Quentin Stoltzfus. I first became aware of Stoltzfus's music when my buddy Chris and I saw his band Mazarin open for Beulah at the 40 Watt Club in Athens in 2002. The first song they played was this driving slice of two-chord pop, surrounded by a wonderful cacophony of electronic noise. I was totally into it, and when I learned that they were from Philadelphia, the city that took in my beloved Del Murphy, well then I knew this had to be a band for me. So I became a fan that night, and would continue to follow the band in the ensuing years. But following the release of 2005's We're Already There, 
things got quiet from the band. I remember eventually hearing that Mazarin had broken up and that Stoltzfus had a new project called Black Stoltzfus, though I never heard anything else beyond that. But in 2013, I read the announcement that Stoltzfus had a new project called Light Heat and that he would be releasing a self-titled record later that year. And his backing band for much of this would be the Walkmen. Now, if you've listened to this show before, you've heard me mention a number of times that the Walkmen are one of my all-time favorite bands. So I pretty much knew in my heart that this was going to be an album that I would really love. So I put in my pre-order, you know, the way God intended. And when Light Heat was released, and it finally arrived at my house, I put it on, and I listened. This is the story of that record. My name is Quentin Stoltzfus. I am the primary member of the band Light Heat. I wrote all the songs for the self-titled Light Heat record, and I produced the album as well. Quentin Stoltzfus would spend portions of his childhood in both Pennsylvania and Texas, and it is at an early age that he would be exposed to music. I was born in PA um, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, which is about an hour outside of Philly, and um I lived in East Texas for a portion of my life from about uh, three until nine. And then we moved to Austin. I lived there until I was 14. And then we moved back to Pennsylvania. And I lived here, you know, basically ever since spent, you know, some time in London. I spent some time in San Francisco. Um, but mostly I've lived in the Philadelphia area since, since about that time. My mom was in a gospel trio with her sisters, and she was a touring musician. And she like recorded a few of her records down in Nashville, and had been doing it since she was like 16 years old. And she had me when I guess she was like 23. So literally the entire time that I've, you know, been alive even when I was in utero was exposed to music pretty much nonstop. And then my first sort of memories of music are in, in church. My parents were really religious and because my mom was a gospel singer, she we were always in church and they were singing and we were singing at home all the time. And my first like musical hero was this drummer in our church and he was this guy and I, I man, I can't remember his name, but he was a great drummer 
And I just remember watching him and being like, that is what I want to be doing, you know? And then I had a family friend who was a guitar player and I was just, I was just always mesmerized and gravitated towards those guys. When I was very young, I would get up and like sing in front of the church. And I remember old ladies just like pinching my cheeks and and loving the songs that I would sing. And I have recordings of, of that stuff. And it's pretty funny. Yeah. Enamored with music, Stoltzfus would learn to play a variety of instruments throughout his childhood, eventually leading to an interest in songwriting. I started playing drums when I was three, continued, you know, I still play drums. And then I started playing piano. I started, I was like messing around. I never took formal piano lessons, but I, as a child, I would just go and like, you know, mess around on a piano and try to make these little songs but uh, I started learning guitar when I was, I believe I was 15 when I got my first acoustic and um, I took like six months of lessons and then I've just been self-taught ever since then. As soon as I got a guitar, I had already kind of envisioned my future. And when I started taking lessons, I wasn't necessarily interested in learning other people's music. I knew I had to on some level learn some songs, but I was interested in writing my own material immediately. And and I had been making recordings, you know, primitive recordings on like single track cassette players. And since I was a very young teenager, like, you know, 12, 13 with my cousins, he, I remember playing like, you know, one of those like Lowry organs that had a drum machine. Me and my cousin would make these just like goofy songs can't remember what they were called but it was a lot of fun and we would listen to music and just try to like you know do our take on it but yeah I really got serious about it when I started playing guitar I had this desire but like songwriting is really hard it takes a long time to sort of learn it particularly when you're stubborn and you don't want to learn it from anyone else you just sort of have this idea of what you want to accomplish. And and I was very um, particular about preserving my sort of own creative voice for better or for worse. I kind of regret that a little bit because I feel like I could have been a better musician and like technically a better musician had I taken more classes and studied music theory more. But like at the time, my primary objective, and this was when I was like 16, 17, my primary objective was like maintaining that sort of what I thought was this unique creativity. And I wanted to preserve that. After graduating from high school, Stoltzfus attends Westchester University, where he would befriend musician Jason D'Amelio, eventually joining D'Amelio's band, the Azusa Plain. That was when I sort of became a quote unquote professional musician. Um, You know, it's like when I played my first shows in London and San Francisco and New York and all over the U.S. But yeah, I had already gotten a four track at that point and an electric guitar and acoustic guitar and some pedals and stuff and was starting to like do my own sort of experimental recordings. And I had met my friend Jason D'Amelio in college. We both uh, went to the same college. He was into recording too. And um, soon after I met him, he like, brought over this seven inch 
and was like, yeah, I recorded this on my four track and I played it. And I was like, wow, this is really amazing. And I was writing a zine at the time and, and interviewed him and kind of was like his number one fan, you know, there was another drummer that was initially the drummer in that band. And he didn't like the way this guy played drums. He's just like, yeah, I got to find another drummer. I was like, well, how about me? So I started playing with him and he insisted that I not play a traditional drum kit. He wanted me to play just like a Mo Tucker style with like a, a kick drum on its side and two cymbals, no hi-hats, no snares. And he wanted me to play with mallets. So I was down. I was like, okay, yeah, sure. And it ended up being just like a genius move um, because the music that we created was, you know, very spontaneous. It was structured, but it was mostly improvised. So every show that we played was different. That sort of solidified my desire to uh, always have that element in my own music. It is during his time with Azusa Plain that Stoltzfus would begin to work on his own material. I was like an incredibly uh, self-conscious, insecure guy at that time. And um, I didn't want to show anyone anything that I had done, like even instrumental tracks at that time. It was very painful for me to show anyone anything because it was like, you know, an expression of my like deepest emotions, even though I wasn't saying anything or like talking about feelings or anything like that. But it was just very hard for me um, to sort of be judged, you know, by people, even my closest friends. But that just sort of eventually evolved into what became the first Mazarin record. And I went through a devastating sort of, uh, relationship with a woman at that time and that's when I started writing lyrics that's when it like really came out of me because I was like fuck it like you know I, I've got nothing to lose at this point I basically just like I felt like it was the end of the line for me and, and um, so I just started writing journaling a lot and just shaping things into songs and um, that was like the beginning of like the songwriting journey for me I had another band um, that was like, you know, it was just like a college band that I, I played with a few buddies and I had, I played guitar in that band and I wrote a couple songs. So at the time I was living in Westchester, Pennsylvania, which was about like 45 minutes outside of Philly. And Brian McKeer was living in Westchester and he had this little eight track half inch recording studio. And uh, we decided to record some of these songs that we had been playing. We played a couple shows and we'd been rehearsing my songs were leaning it more in the direction that I was going. And I went in and recorded them with Brian and I played drums and I played guitar and I played bass. That was the first project that we worked on. Um, I think I had moved to Texas during that time period too. Um, I was living with like some family down there for about six months. But then when I came back, I had been working on all these, all these songs and rehearsed with a drummer that I had met sean Byrne started putting these songs together you know making four track recordings and finally got to the point where i was like all right i think i might be ready to make an actual record and just around that time brian had moved to another studio that had better gear and had partnered up with this guy and it was a bigger space and um that 
sort of, you know, sort of kismet, you know, it all kind of came together right around the time that I was working on that first Mazarin record. And I was not prepared for sort of like the quality um, that he was getting at that time. Kind of just like this amazing coincidence that like I had this record ready. He had finally found his sea legs with this like new studio and we had access to all this gear that we could have never imagined before. It was like a really nice um, one inch 16 track tape machine, which up to that point, like the most I'd worked on was eight tracks. In June of 2000, Stoltzfus releases Mazarin's first album, Watch It Happen. Kevin initially intended to continue the project as a studio endeavor only. The unexpected attention the album would receive would prompt Stoltzfus to turn Mazarin into a somewhat proper band, though still existing as his sole creative vision. All of my experiences being in bands up to that point, other than Azusa Plain, but the other bands that I had been in with other people, because of my process of working like a little slower and like having sort of like a, a full idea of what I wanted my music to be, I realized that that didn't work in sort of like a democratic diplomatic environment. And I realized that, you know, a lot of people who had a different vision were much more sort of overbearing and were faster at writing stuff so you know their 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 songs sort of took precedent over mine that were like these slow burn you know pieces that i put together over many many months and worked on really hard and like i'd been through that so many times that i was like all right this is going to be my thing i'm going to make all the decisions i'm going to bring in the people that i want to bring in and they're going to be collaborators but everyone's going to know that this is my thing. That was like really what inspired Mazarin. I, I didn't even have a name for the band. I didn't really have a band. Like we, we would get together in the studio, we'd rehearse the songs and then we'd record them. There was never really an intention of playing shows. That sort of happened after the record was released. And literally the first song I put out was Wheats. And that was named enemy single of the week like the week that it came out and that was crazy because I, I had not intended on playing shows and uh you know after we learned that we set up our first show at the kyber and it was like a sold out show and that was the first show that i had played singing in front of people so it was a very very quick um ascent so to speak it is while on tour in 2002 that Stoltzfus would meet the members of the Walkmen. 
we had the same booking agent and uh you know he asked us if he wanted to open for these guys and we i knew nothing about jonathan fire eater i knew nothing about these guys and uh the plan was for us to meet up in arizona for our first show i believe it was in tempe arizona or scottsdale or one of the neighborhoods in, in around phoenix and we were supposed to play this show and you know we had played a bunch of other shows getting to that point and we had toured i had done several tours at that point so um you know we were pretty seasoned at that point and uh we get to this show and i walk into this like massive club and i'm like all right cool this is, these are going to be good shows it's going to be big and hamilton lighthouser is the first guy i met and he's like he looks like a like a frat dude and he's wearing a like a terrible visor and just looking like a total goofball. And I was like, oh, God, who, who is this guy? So immediately out of the gate, I was like, all right, I don't like these guys. And then they decided to bail on this show because the promoter had not promoted the show and nobody knew about it. So it was like us and another band and them. They were basically like, yeah, we're going to we're going to just, you know, move on to the next the next show. And we were like, what? And then us and the other band played to nobody. And so that was my first impression of them. And I didn't like them at all. Uh, I thought they were total assholes. And so the next show we saw them, I had basically made up my mind that this whole tour was a failure at that point. And like I was calling my booking agent saying like, why did you put me on this tour with these guys? They're assholes and they suck, even though I hadn't seen them play yet. Um, so I didn't even watch them the next show. I can't remember where it was, but it was somewhere on the West Coast, uh, like L.A. or San Diego. And uh, my drummer at the time watched them and was like, yo, these guys are good. And I was like, yeah, whatever. They're assholes. I don't care. I'm not going to watch them. So we played another show with them. I believe it was Los Angeles that we played with them the next show. And uh, I didn't watch them again. I was just like pissed at these guys for bailing on us in Arizona. And again, the drummer was like, yo, seriously, these guys are really good. I was still not buying it. And uh, our next show, I remember distinctly because that's when it clicked for me. It was in San Luis Obispo. We were playing uh, this coffee shop. It was like this very tiny little sort of place. And I was leaning up against our van that was parked right out in front of this thing and they started playing and I was watching. So, so like there was a big glass window and on the other side of that window was Matt Barrett playing drums. And I was just sitting there watching him playing drums being like, wow, this guy is incredible. Like this guy's insane, like good. Like he's so, he was such a great drummer. And so that's sort of like what got me into like accepting these guys. You know, the next night I watched them again and I was like, okay, yeah, they're pretty good. They're pretty good. And I started like getting into Paul's guitar playing. And then like slowly as the tour went on, we just became really good friends with them, you know, and I started watching them more. And by the end of that tour, I mean, we were just like super tight. I was a huge fan. I had 
an incredible amount of respect for all of them. And, you know, after you play like, you know, 15 days with a group of people, you're pretty bonded forever. Um, and then we just did like so many tours after that. They, every time that they would do a tour, they would want us to open up for them, um, which of course was impossible, but like we, we did a, a ton of tours over the next few years and I became really good friends with those guys. And, um, to this day, I'm still, they're my brothers, you know, I'm, I, I own a studio with Matt and, um, I talk to them on social media and, and text them like oh, probably everyone in the band almost every week. And I've produced Pete's record and I've played on a lot of their, their stuff. And um, yeah, I just consider them to be like brothers at this point. Following the release of Mazarin's third album, 2005's were already there. Stoltzfus would lose the right to record and perform music under the name Mazarin due to the existence of another band claiming prior ownership over the name. They kind of popped up in between the first record coming out and Tall Tale Storyline. They had contacted my label and tried to get in touch with me and left a few messages, you know, just l making us aware of their existence. I, I talked with my label and my publisher because after the first record, I got a publishing deal and I got a new label. And everyone gave me the same advice i talked to a lawyer at the time and he said they all said the same thing which was to like just ignore them and they'll go away and if they don't go away we'll escalate it so i took that advice and for a time they sort of disappeared i hadn't heard from them in a while and then we're already there came out which is the last mazarin record and they really ramped up their level of harassment they started getting like family members to send me emails and they started calling me more often they started calling my labels i'm not sure why they started doing that but i know that i had been getting some national attention there had been some songs that were on commercials you know we were touring a lot we were playing shows in new york they claimed that like some fans bought tickets to our shows and showed up expecting to see them. And, you know, we, we were on instead of them. And like, they were really disappointed because we sucked. Um, <laughs> it was a very, very strange period, but it finally all escalated to the point where um, I had been touring for months and months and months for like several years straight. I was on tour for like six months out of the year and it was really, rough hard touring not making a lot of money not making any money and, and you know, like sleeping on floors not staying in hotels and all of the things that anyone who's ever toured experiences we were experiencing all the bad stuff and then there's also these like beautiful like moments where you're like in this beautiful place you know you have these these incredible times but we were experiencing like really rough hard touring even in spite of the fact that like Critics loved our music, and we had been getting, like, I think I got, like, an 8, 8.0 on Pitchfork and got written up in Rolling Stone, and the British press really loved us, and we were constantly, like, doing, like, cool European tours, et cetera, et cetera. I remember the day, though, it was, we, I was in Minneapolis, and I got a call from my label, and, you know, they said, like, hey, this is getting serious. These guys are, like, threatening to sue you. And they want to serve you with papers on stage at Webster Hall. 
when you open up for the Walkman. And it's a problem because they're going to have to like ramp up security. Like they're having their friends call. There's like all this other stuff going on. So essentially like the, the show that I was hoping that would help sort of finance this tour that we had been on Webster hall had to bring in all this additional security to prevent them from coming on stage and interrupting our show. And of course that came out of our cut. Not to mention that it was also like incredibly stressful for me to like be playing a show knowing that some like wild person might come up and like attack me and or, or like you know make some like spectacle of, of the show and like serve me with papers. So after that, we were sort of forced into uh negotiating with them and we tried to uh figure out a way of sharing the name. And and I was on a subsidiary of a major label at that time, and they kind of turned against me and hired a lawyer to defend them and then charged me for his fees as well. So any money that I made off of that record went to this guy instead of me. So, yeah, it, it ended badly where I basically could no longer tour under the name. I couldn't put any more records out under that name, but I could exploit the catalog that I had already created. So, you know, it basically just like torpedoed my career, uh, like in one fell swoop. I was not in a great position for a long time in spite of the like sort of recognition that I had gotten. So I had to basically start from scratch. I was really the only guy that was dealing with all of this because I was the primary member of the band. I had a shifting lineup, you know, all the burden of responsibility sort of like rested on my shoulders dealing with this. So uh, it was rough because I had put in like seven years of my life actively working towards this album that I had put out that I was really proud of that I thought was going to sort of, you know, launch me into that next level where I could actually have a career where I was making money and could do well. But yeah, it just all sort of crumbled overnight. In the period following Mazarin's disbandment, Stoltzfus would face a number of obstacles and ordeals, making the prospects of creating new music a challenge. After Mazarin broke up, I finished up a couple of tours under a different name. I did a a tour with Clap Your Hands, so yeah, it was just a brief tour. I had scheduled tours in Japan and Australia that I had to cancel because I couldn't play under that name. You know, I basically went into a sort of like very, very dark time in my life where I was broke. My, you know, main source of income had been taken away from me. I owned a house that I couldn't pay the mortgage payments on. You know, I had all this debt from years of touring. So I was in a bad shape. I was had, had like tax troubles, like you name it like everything was closing in on me. Like my grandmother died around that period of time. So I was deeply, deeply depressed and I wasn't getting like any like treatment for it. I wasn't seeing a shrink or anything like that. I was just working a job, struggling, trying to get by and uh, trying not to like, (laughs) I I should, I should say, how, how do I put this? I was trying not to drink myself to death, but I was basically like drinking myself to death. (laughs) Um, I don't know how I survived it, frankly. Like it was devastating to say the least. 
Um, and I just sort of felt abandoned by my label. I felt abandoned by my publisher. I didn't really have anyone stepping up to help me and, and, you know, nor should I have expected to like being in the music business is a risky game. Like it's a gamble and I lost a lot of bets. So yeah, it, it was like some very dark years and I don't really remember a lot from around 2006 to 2011 um, because I just remember waking up every day and just like seeing the same crack in my ceiling and just like wondering when it was like going to end, like wondering when the suffering was going to end. Um, and slowly I just kind of, you know, with the help of some, some really good friends, um, I sort of came out of it very slowly and, uh, I started working on some other people's records and trying to like produce stuff and shift to, to being like an engineer and more of a producer. And, um, that never really worked out. I mean, I made, I made some records that I'm very proud of, but it, nothing really paid off. I wasn't making enough money to get by on that sort of thing. And I had like an, an enormous case of writer's block too. That certainly didn't help. In time, Stoltzfus would gradually begin work on new material and would receive the extra push needed to see the project through from his friends in the Walkman. Paul Maroon and Matt were both living in Philadelphia and the other guys were living in New York. I had played Paul a few of my demos that I had been working on and um, he's like, hey, look, we, you, you've got to record these. You've you got to like get this done. And, uh, you know, we went back and forth, you know, for months of him harassing me to get this thing done. And he had been sharing a, a little studio space with, with us, you know, in the previous like three, four years. So we were always seeing each other around town and like hanging out and having dinners together and all that stuff. But finally, he came to me with an ultimatum and said, hey, Quentin, I'm moving to New Orleans in a month. So it's now or never. We need to get this stuff done. And I was like, okay, all right, let's do it. And and I had been building a studio with my friend Alec Owensworth, who uh, plays in Clap Your Hands, Say Yeah. And, and he had uh, he had this house with this stone barn and behind it. And um, we had been working on the studio for a couple of years. Finally got to the point where it was like ready to go. And I felt comfortable in there. So we went in and we banged out the uh, basic tracks in a few days, you know, um, everybody but Hamilton played on the record. I asked him to, but he, he didn't come down. And I still hold it against him. <laughs> With the majority of the basic tracking complete, Stoltzfus would continue to work on the record at his home studio in Philadelphia, as well as a makeshift studio inside a yurt located on his family's farm in Virginia. Right around 2010 is when um, we built the yurt in Virginia, and so I was able to go down there and do a lot of tracking. That was like my ideal place to work. A, I was around my family, you know, I was I was like I could walk to my sister's house, which was just a mile down the down a dirt road. Um, I was in this yurt by myself on about 40 acres of land. Um, farm animals around there was a wood shop and i could just kind of go over and like mess around with my dad or like drive some tractors or you know do whatever in the daytime and then just like stay up late at night 
blasting as loud as I wanted to, knowing that I wasn't disturbing anyone. It was like sort of this ideal setting where I just had a little small recording set up with a drum kit, a bass guitar, a couple guitars, a computer, and, you know, some like real minimal recording gear. It was like an ideal setting for me because I sort of like doing one thing, I get bored. I need to like have multiple things going on, like multiple um, types of stimulation, like whether that be like, you know, mowing the grass or like working on some woodworking project or taking care of farm animals, uh, like all that stuff sort of helps me feel creative and it makes me feel inspired to like work on music and uh, it inspires lyrics and it just gets my brain working in a positive way. And uh, so that was like a very ideal setting to sort of do some more tracking. But most of the tracking was done at Python's Palace because um, I had recorded it on one inch eight track and, um, and then dumped it to Pro Tools. And at the time I didn't have like a, a really great Pro Tools setup at my house. Um, uh, and I was fortunate to get one of those later so I could kind of move in all these different spaces that were available to me to record. And in the end, he made a record. Lightheat opens with the track Dance the Cosmos Light, featuring an ethereal mixture of shimmering guitars and electronic flourishes. The song pulsates through its striving rhythm section, which creates the perfect musical backing on which Stoltzfus's triumphant vocal melody can soar. So that song was born on a four track and I still like when I was done recording the final version of that song and I had it mastered, I was still on the fence um, as to whether or not the four track version was better than that. The final version, like the four track version has this wild energy that I just love and I nailed the four track version of the song, nailed it. And I was really stoked on it. I cannot remember how I came up with the chord progression, how I came up with the vocal melody. I mean, you know, generally how I work um, on almost every song that I've ever written is I start with a chord progression and then I do what I call mumble blocks over top of it. So I just like 
I'll just like mumble syllables over top of this like structure that I've created that I had been finally satisfied with after maybe, you know, many attempts at um, improvising this basic structure of the song. And I'll just sort of mumble over top of it, um, which I found out recently that that's how the Bee Gees wrote. How deep is your love? Which made me very happy. It was that very validating. You know, it's got fuzz bass on it and some wild synths that uh, I, I have this synth called a Champ. It's a Univox Champ. Um, I had had it for many years. It's kind of broken. And I ran that through um, a copycat and sort of manipulated it while I was the synth line. And I had one channel that was dry and one channel that was delay. So uh, that's kind of like all those flying sounds that are like those wild, wild, like psych sounds in that song. That's what that is. So that one, lyrically, I had been visiting Virginia um, and me and my mom went on a hike and we just we saw all these different mushrooms that were growing around the Blue Ridge Mountains. And I didn't know anything about mushrooms. So I went to like a Barnes and Noble and I got this like one of those little field guides on mushrooms. And I started looking through it and like the names of mushrooms are so poetic and so beautiful. And most of the lyrics of that songs are, are names of mushrooms. So, so I basically like listed all the names that I really like and then created a a narrative based off of that so in many ways it's just like sort of like this word collage catchy chorus and buoyant spirit, the track Brain to Recorder contains the subtle and intricate details of an intelligent pop song, while at the same time exuding a sense of off-the-cuff looseness. It's the sort of effortless feel that only a band like the Walkman could pull off, and exemplifies what made that band so special. Those guys should, first of all, they should still be together, and they should be taking over the world instead of Whoever's taking over the world right now, I don't even know. Um, but yeah, those guys are, they're all incredibly talented musicians, incredibly talented songwriters, and just just so creative. And, you know, I, I really feel like when, when I met them, I just sort of, I, I felt like we were kindred spirits and like I said, I still talk to those guys all the time. Like Matt is now one of my main collaborators. You know, he's playing on the new record that I'm working on. He's all over it. And I feel so 
privileged to like play with him. And I felt so privileged to play with all those guys because they were just so talented. I mean, Walt, what he's done with his career is like so impressive. The guy is like, you know, he's so next level talented. All of them are, but yeah, Paul's guitar playing. Like, I still don't think he has any idea of how good he is, you know? So that song, I I was visiting a friend in uh, Prescott, Arizona, and uh, Ben Dickey and Beth Bloffson, they're dear friends of mine. They were living out there, and Ben was working at this restaurant called The Raven, which sometimes have shows. And we had, Mazarin had played there, and I sort of became friends with the owner. And, um, you know, they were living there, and they had this awesome house, like, up on a hill overlooking the city. And so I went out there for, like, a week or ten days, and I took my little cassette recorder with me during the days like Ben would go to work and Beth would go. I believe she was like going to school at the time. And so I was just in their awesome house by myself. They had this beautiful porch and I had a typewriter and I would just make like demos all day and like type things out. And I actually have recordings of me typing, typing things out in the early demos of Brain the Recorder. That was a part of the song of me typing the lyrics to the song that song is obviously about getting ripped off in the music industry (laughs) and also it's a little bit about you know that my creative process um you know like toil to paper brain to recorder that's like suffering for me leads to me being able to write brain to recorder for me like i've always wanted a direct line from my brain to like whatever setup that i'm recording to and that's i've always wanted it to be an extension of myself and that has always been the goal and i I did finally achieve that where i finally got to the point where i became knowledgeable enough with the recording process that it became sort of like i didn't even have to think about it and even more so now where you know i've got a home studio and i've got uh, a real studio as well that i share with with other people and it's like it's seamless um if i have an idea it comes out very quickly now and and it translates and so yeah that was like sort of like the inspiration of that song and it took many months to sort of finalize the lyrics but that was like how it started knowingly at the time ripped off a Bob Dylan song sort of uh, the band of me that was sort of my inspiration for that like those la la la's I just was really into that song at the time and I wanted to see if I could fit that one in without anyone noticing and I haven't heard from Bob yet so I guess that's a good sign but yeah I was really happy with that song um, and that was sort of like my main jam for a while that I was showing to people. And when I recorded it with uh, the Walkman guys, I mean, it just like came alive. And I'm, I'm really proud of that one. I love it. Following Brain to Recorder, is the hypnotic headphone pop of Are We Ever Satisfied, 
which greatly emphasizes Stoltzfus's talents as an architect of sonic ear candy. whistling into a mic pre and blowing it out so the yeah that's a whistle just that's really blown out that's a trick that i've always utilized too like trying to take organic sounds and and like fucking them up so much that they sound like they're processed you know something that i spend a lot of time working on and that goes back to like you know my early days of playing with Azusa playing and just like having that sort of sonic awareness, you know, and uh, I was fortunate enough to like play with bands who had that, that awareness as well. Like we toured with the Nutramilk Hotel and Olivia Tremor Control. And I became friends with those guys early on. And like, I loved their music and, and it was all very sonically aware, you know? And, um, that has remained like a central focus for me uh, forever. You know, like I just love, I love noise. I love surrounding like a, you know, what can, could be described as like a basic pop song um, with just like wild sounds. I mean, like when you walk, when you're in a city, it's, it's a symphony of sound that you're surrounded by. And like, why not replicate that in music? You know, I surf and when you're out on the ocean, there's birds flying by you. There's like the sound of waves, which is white noise. I mean, there's just, there's always so much to tune into. And I was always very sort of bored with just like songs that had nothing else going on other than like a guitar and a voice and maybe some drums and a bass. It's like, come on, man, you can do more than that. Like, and it's just fun. I just feels for me, it just feels like you're, it's like a sonic painter, you know? Um, that's where I get my pleasure from is like doing that, those sort of like that, that wild stuff, you know, that one came from a recording that I had made at home. I don't know when it was 2005, 2006. And it had just been like kicking around on my computer for a while. And I really liked it and I wanted to use it somehow but i had just never found a way to make it work eventually like got to the point where i was like you know what this needs is double drums starts off with the drum machine i guess there was already a bass line on it as well like the, the bass line that's predominant throughout the song and then i just started playing double drums to that and that's when it really sort of came alive and i believe i played drums on that i can't remember but i'm pretty sure i did and yeah, I just sort of built that beat and 
built the rest of the song around that. There's actually a lot of really fucked up parts on that song. It's kind of funny. I knew it when I was like mastering it. And I was like, you know what? I don't care if people notice this. Cool. But I like it and I'm just going to stick with it. But I got some friends of mine. Their band was called Pink Skulls. And they had this amazing collection of like synthesizers and like all this really weird stuff. And so I got them to track on that too. So all those weird sounds at the end of that song, that's them. And yeah, that one was just like this weird project that I had been working on for a long time and it just made the cut. contains all the elements that one could hope for in a perfectly executed pop song, including a concise arrangement, memorable melodies, and interesting lyrics delivered with a confident swagger. But what truly sets this song apart is its unique sonic landscape, held together by Matt Barrick's distinctive galloping drums. Matt is a creative drummer, man. He is, you know, he's, he's just like so creative. You know, after many years of like working with people and I, I finally came to the realization that I needed to work with people who I admired and like give them very little instruction. Let them do what they're gonna do. Give them, push them in the direction, but like not regulate it too much. And that's what I did with Matt on this stuff. And he's just so good. He's so creative and so interesting. And yeah. This song for me is like in in my top five of songs that I've written um, because it's like I'm really proud of the lyrical content. I really love the melody and the chord progression. I'm very proud of that. And I wasn't necessarily deliberately setting out to sound like anything. It's just kind of what came out. And I couldn't tell you what inspired that song, um, at least from a musical perspective. But I know that like the lyrics for that were written right after my grandmother had passed away and her funeral was crazy. She was an old order Amish woman. She was buried in like the Amish tradition. And 
one of the most beautiful things that I've ever experienced in my life. And it sounds dark and sad, but you know, we had the service of the church and everyone sang and everybody in this church had pipes. So it was like a choir of people singing all these beautiful old uh, songs that my, my grandmother had requested that they sing that she grew up with and that I had grown up with. I'm, you know, based I'm like, like an atheist at this point i i'm not religious at all but like those songs still really move me in a way that is like really hard to describe i mean i just remember that feeling of hearing all these people like belting it out and then after the service we went to the burial ground and we like the family physically lowered her coffin into the ground and like everyone threw flowers in there and uh, covered her up. Like everyone took a shovel and like the family took responsibility for burying her, which I know sounds like kind of like dark and like morbid, but it was one of the most beautiful things that I've ever been a part of. I mean, just like that, sense of responsibility for caring for a loved one's body like to the end was powerful for me and that was like the inspiration for that song i mean that the first line is like a direct reference to that and the rest of the song kind of you know meanders into other territory that is you know sort of a collage of like many many things but like the last line of that song is, is like it's that mountain elevation it can open up the dark spaces of your mind like that's sort of like bringing it back to the present of being like okay like you know I, I guess I was imagining myself at like a high elevation and having like some hallucinations or something while I was writing that song I rarely overly like delve into the meanings of my song. I just accept them at face value and I leave it up to the listener to sort of determine what it's about for them. But that one for sure was very rooted. At least part of it was very rooted in like an actual real experience that I had. I mean, all my lyrics are rooted in real experiences for the most part, but sometimes they're a little obtuse and a little difficult for, for even, even for me to grasp. And I'm okay with that. I'm okay with not fully understanding you know, this collection of words that I put together. lyrics about loss with a celebratory musical backing. The track, And the Birds, is the type of composition of which Stoltzfus excels, seamlessly combining the light with the dark. Drenched in droning organ and accentuated by a glistening harp provided by musician Mary Lattimore, the track evokes a sort of world music vibe, 
due in part to the drum beat provided by Walter Martin. You know, he's got this island vibe to him, and this song definitely has that, and it was just perfect. I have a vague recollection of us struggling through this, and Walt finally being like, hey, how about this? And, uh, and, and he also played the bass on that, too, and so it was kind of like a lot of input from him on that song. And we tracked a lot of this stuff live, you know, with me on an acoustic guitar, you know, in the room with them, and I was recording it as well. Just like going for it. Mary Lattimore, very talented, revered, Harpist, she's awesome. She's originally from Asheville, North Carolina, and she lived in Philly for a long time, and her heart is here for sure, but now she lives in LA. She's got a, a wild career. She plays with everybody. She, she's awesome. Mary is a hustler. She's, she has dragged around an 80-pound harp around the world, and she moves it herself. She drags it up steps by herself. Like She hustles. I met Mary at a show, it might have even been the last Mazarin show, and she came up to me and told me how much she loved my music, and she said, if there's ever, ever anything that you want harp on, let me know. And I was just like, harp? I had not even considered it. And then I was listening, I was like working on this song, and it popped, like this, the, that line popped into my head, and I played it on guitar for her, like, trying to teach her and it was hard for her to get through it but she did i love that contribution to that song she really nailed it so the one lyric you find them on the cliffs of tojimbo don't let them go so the cliffs of tojimbo are the i don't even know if i'm saying it right it's probably pronounced differently it's the most popular place in japan for people to commit suicide and i had several friends that had taken their own life in the years prior to that. And uh, one of them was my friend Jason D'Amelio, who was a founding member of Azusa Plain. And the other was a former member of Mazarin named Steve Keller. He was an incredibly talented drummer. I was vacationing in Florida with my family when I wrote some of those lyrics. And I remember reading about it in the New York Times and I was in the middle of writing the lyrics for that song and that popped up and I was like, I was like, I got to figure out a way of working this in because it's just too relevant to my life to ignore it and to my experience. And so that that's kind of that song is, you know, sort of about suffering and loss as well. I mean, a lot of my songs are. That's always been sort of a goal for me to like deal with the heavy topics lyrically, but like keep it light and, you know, sort of like express the gratitude for being alive you know the 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 like to get into why like so for many years when i was very depressed and this is like pre any sort of music career that i had i was very depressed very suicidal thought about it every day for many years and finally got to a point where i was like okay it's today or it's just off the table 
and that has been my sort of survival mo you know since then and uh, i just i took that option off the table like many years ago but like still tap into that sort of dark energy but there is like the the reason that i really like to juxtapose it with you know positive music is like it's a recognition of both sides of the coin where it's like you know the the lyrical content is super dark super heavy super serious but at the same time it's just like you know the dance of death is a fun dance it's a beautiful like can be like this celebration of life it can be like this beautiful sort of um thing that doesn't have to be gravitating towards like the darkness but you're you're sort of being grateful for being alive you know that's like mo number one for me like don't ignore it don't ignore the darkness express it live it but realize that like this opportunity that we all have together to do this together is pretty wild but you got to appreciate that even if you're suffering a deceptively dynamic number that mysteriously builds as it chugs along on top of a steady metronomic beat, which keeps the song grounded even during its moments of ascension. I will be the first to admit that this song is a complete mystery to me. Like I, I knew when I wrote the first sort of incarnation of the song that I uh, that I was onto something that I didn't understand, and I probably never will understand. And uh, for me, it almost feels like this sacred piece where, you know, like I don't. I know vaguely what the lyrics are about, but the whole song, both lyrically and, uh, um, you know, from a, an arrangement standpoint, is so complex that I can't even I can't even tell you um, much about it. It was inspired by one of my favorite films, um, The Mirror, by um, Andrei Tarkovsky. And I subsequently found his father's book of poetry, his father's Arseny Tarkovsky, and his book of poetry is really amazing. It's really beautiful. And uh, I drew a lot of inspiration from that. But I don't know where the song came from. I don't know. Like, it's one of those things that is just like, as mysterious as it is to anyone else, it is to me. Like, I, it's, it's bizarre. I'm, I'm shocked that I was able to finish it, frankly, because I struggled. I struggled with it really for a long time. And Paul Maroon helped me sort of figure out the arrangement. Yeah. 
this like static thing with just like the bass and drums going throughout most of it with like a little bit of echo guitar work happening and then it just has this like build that I, I, I think is rooted mostly in like the um, the vocal melody and the energy of the vocal performance um, but I feel very like detached from that song in a weird way where I almost feel like it was an out-of-body experience an extended out-of-body experience because I worked on that song for months and months and months and months and it was a it was a bear because i i held that song to like the highest standards that i have and i'm already pretty hard on myself it felt like an accomplishment and i'm like that may be my proudest moment as a songwriter in terms of like you know the nexus of the vocal melody the arrangement the performances and the lyrical content it just like hits pretty perfectly for me um and i i, I like i said i don't understand it <laughs> you tell me what it's about i it's i i don't know it, it's that's a tough one you know i always try to embrace the mystery and i'm okay with that i'm okay with like being a conduit Atmospheric pop of lies contains a multitude of ambient sounds that ebb and flow around mechanical like drums and layers of haunting vocals. for me is just man it's been so long I have I, I can't even tell you what the words are to this one. it's really just like more uh, about like creating some sort of like weird Kate Bush sort of like bizarre topography in a song it may as well be just like an instrumental song with some you know with my vocal being like an instrument and just multiple layers. So the story behind that is that I uh, was asked to go teach a songwriting course at the Esalen Institute in Big Sur, which is like this sort of like it's it, it was a part of like the human potential movement. Like Joseph Campbell spent a lot of time there and it was like sort of like an alternative treatment place. There's these natural hot springs there and I was asked to teach this course with my friend Bill Baird, who's a really talented 
musician, another like collaborator that I've you know spent like the past fifteen years like working with. And so we went there, and like the night before we left, someone gave us some liquid acid, and it was like the most amazing trip that I've ever had in my life. Like ten years before, I had had a really bad trip in London. After that, I was like, I'm done. I'm not taking acid ever again. It was terrible. I had like a, a mind meltdown for like six months after that. So like the two songs that came from this sort of wild acid trip that I had in Esalen were, was Lies and Dark Light. I think I was just attempting to sort of like convey the vibe that I was feeling, which is so difficult to explain because it was such a an experience we were sitting in these hot springs these natural hot springs that had been sort of utilized by the esalen tribe it dates back like three thousand years we're sitting in these natural hot springs 50 feet over the pacific ocean like on these cliffs and it's like the most beautiful place you've ever been to in your life and you know like all this is happening i'm looking up at the stars and there's like this kaleidoscope first of all one of the things that i kept saying was like i felt like i had the keys to the spaceship and like, what, who, who are we to get the keys to the spaceship? Why did they give us to us? And then I also felt envy from the universe. Like I felt like the stars were looking down on me saying like, oh, wow, I wish I was you. And that was like the experience that I was sort of trying to encapsulate in, in those two songs in particular. <laughs> I sound like an insane person, I know. and Dragons, a track that seems to sonically coexist in the two separate realms of Birdsy and Jangle Pop and a reverb-soaked dreamscape. Yeah, I like trying to do that occasionally, like, you know, have one element of a mix that is living in a completely different space than another element. I forced Paul to, to do something that I do all the time, which is to, like, record a solo and then record another solo of that same part without listening to the first one so you're doubling it essentially like that makes no sense Quentin why are you making me do that I was like trust me it's gonna be great I forced him to do that and then I brought both of them up I just love how it creates this sort of like really wild stereo sound it's sort of random um, 
and he wasn't crazy about it but I, I i was like no this is perfect paul it's a beautiful solo but yeah i definitely told matt's channel charlie watts on that one that was basically all live other than my vocal we dubbed the uh the guitar solo and that was about it and i really love the recording quality of that sound that was all tape for the most part and it just sounds really warm and and uh yeah i like that song i also used uh one of my favorite guitars i don't get to use very often which is an old k les paul guitar and it has a really unique sound and that's the rhythm guitar sound that you hear that song is one that i know you know the meaning i know what it's about uh it's basically like me mourning the loss of a friend who's still alive but it's a loss of a friendship and it was the result of another mutual friend who had died and it sort of like wrecked the friendship that i had with this person who's still alive and obviously chasing dragons is like a euphemism for um, smoking heroin <laughs> and it's something that like you know that for a very brief period of my of my life i experienced with this person and and yeah it was just me like reflecting back on that and sort of like feeling sad about the loss of that friendship but also just sort of like coming to terms with the fact that was just how it had to be because of just the different ways that we both had dealt with the loss of a friend the penultimate track a loyal subject of the status quo combines nugget era's punkiness with the wild abandon of noise rock. So this one was one that I was like infatuated with for a long time. And I played the drums on this one. Pretty sure I played everything on this one. I can't remember. This was a long journey, this song, because I had written it and recorded it. And I think this was done before I even like started recording with a Walkman. But I had a completely different vocal melody and a completely different set of lyrics to the song that I then later decided that I didn't like. So I went back and rewrote the vocal melody and rewrote the lyrics. And this is just, this song is also a little more direct. It's just about the absurdity of the American like culture at that time. And, and which has like gotten even more absurd, but yeah, I mean, it's an angry, mean fucking song. Like, you know, uh, my mom does not like the song. Um, and she likes most of my, my music, but yeah, it's just, it's just kind of like spitting blood on like the absurdity of American culture and how fucked up it is and how 
nobody seems to give a shit and uh and just calling that out you know um and i i kind of felt like i had to get mean on this one you know if i didn't then i wasn't being honest with myself and and i said a lot of a lot of mean things that i don't truly believe like you know i don't think the kids are assholes obviously and i don't think that like if you if you have if, if you are just a normal person uh, that you're an asshole but i felt like it needed to be said like i'm i'm i live a very normal life at this point like i have a normal job i live in a normal house in like a quiet neighborhood in philadelphia and like in many ways i could be talking about myself so i i do relate to like you know, the sort of people or the group of people that this ire of this song is directed towards. Um, and maybe it's a little bit directed towards myself. I don't know. But I'm proud of it because of just the raw emotion behind it. And I love the guitar work. I always feel the necessity to sort of like bring the wild guitar sound to at least one song on on all of my records because it's fun first of all and maybe not everyone knows how to do it and maybe I'm maybe I'm a guy that that does know how to do it and I feel like I should 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 share that you know and like keep it going it's a it's at this point it's a weird tradition you know and like I loved Flying Saucer Attack when I was younger and I spent some time with that guy, like talking to him about his guitar style and like his process. And I, I know Kevin Shields pretty well and I've spent a lot of time with him, like learning about his different techniques and applied that to some, probably like one song per record. And I feel like, I feel privileged to, I'm, I'm not saying that to brag. I feel like very fortunate to like, know these people you know to have spent time with them and to had like real meaningful technical conversations with them about like how to do this sort of thing and also my friend kurt easley too that uh, taught me a lot about how to get like wild tones like that you know so yeah that one that's like just me trying to keep a dream alive <laughs>
Light Heat concludes with Dark Light, a sparsely arranged number featuring a jaunty acoustic guitar pattern surrounded by conspicuous sawtooth synths and layers of Stoltzfus's lush multi-track vocals, turning what would typically be a standard folk song into something truly transcendent. Dark Light was like, like I said earlier, was like a direct reflection on the experience that I had when I took liquid acid at, at Esalen, and that was intense. Like, there were several things that sort of occurred that night, but one of them was like this little circular hut that's uh, located next to like this rushing mountain stream that ends in like a 40, 50 foot waterfall in the Pacific. And I was sitting in this hut, like it's meant for people to go in and meditate. And, and all you could hear is, is this like this din of white noise in the background, but it was muted because of the structure. So you just hear this sort of like while you're in there, at least when you're tripping on acid that's through here. And so I was sitting in there with my eyes closed and I was picturing this like this beam of energy coming out from space. <laughs> and I know this sounds wild, but it was like coming out from the from space down into the center of this structure, into this river, going into the Pacific, you know, as you meditate silence among the millionaires. And like, this place is like a very exclusive place. Like I could not afford to go to this place if I wasn't teaching there, you know, all the people that we were hanging out with, you know, the board of the Joe Campbell foundation and like, you know, CEOs coming to like retreats to, to like learn about, human potential movement like retirees who were coming there to like take these various wild classes like their programs there are wild and interesting but at the same point i was kind of resentful of the fact of like the exclusive nature of this place so that gives like a, a setting at least for like where this song came from I don't know. I like I like the chord progression. I like the guitar work on that one. But I wanted it to be reflective of that experience. You know, I wanted it to have that sort of quality of that intensity, but also just like that almost otherworldly quality where it's it's grounded, but it's also just like it's weird sounding. You know. My next choices are based on feeling and, and like how I like his sonics and like that's all that matters and I get accused of bearing my vocals a lot but I don't really care. I do things that I think are beautiful and if other people don't think that they're entitled to that opinion and they're entitled to listen to something else or to make their own music but like this is just a direct expression of myself. I try not to waver from that too much. I try really hard to just you know for better or for worse be true to whatever feeling I'm having and 
you know, sometimes it can be difficult. It can be painful. It can be a challenge. You know, the process of making a record is not easy for me. Um, and it's not easy for most people that I know. Anyone who says it's easy to just bang at a record, they're either not doing it right or they're not trying hard enough. If you're really self-critical and you're really sort of evaluating everything that you're doing in a deep way, then it should be a difficult process. And, um, you know, I, I feel like if I'm not giving that to people, then I'm cheating myself and I'm cheating everyone else. And uh, that's always been super important to me, like this, you know, painful sort of earnestness. I can honestly say that that has always been my absolute goal in every record that I've made. And that's why it takes me so long. I mean, I've, I've done like in um, 20 years, I've made five records, you know, like, and I'm, I'm fine with that because it takes a long time for me to get through this stuff and to sort of like feel, um, feel like I've gone through the various experiences that uh, lead to the, content you know and uh i'm not doing obviously i'm not doing this for money i don't make money doing this i do it because it's something that i love and it's like this sacred act for lack of a better description even though again i'm not a religious person but i'm like spiritual in that way where i feel like you know i owe it to myself and anyone who's listening um to try to make it as as good as i possibly can with the resources that i have for the album art, collage artist Anthony Garacci is brought in to work on the design, which would utilize pieces by artist Victoria Berg. Yeah, Victoria, um, I saw her art at a local show here in Philly, and I just really loved it. And the original artwork was just one of her pieces that I actually I bought. But what ended up happening was the label wanted something a little different. So we licensed several of her pieces, which is great for her because she got more money. And I didn't have to pay for it. The label paid for it. And then we had Anthony Garace. He's this really cool collage artist. So he took her artwork and made these collages out of it. And uh, I'm really happy with the way that it turned out. And it was a long, that was a long process as well. And then... Um, we got uh, my friend Rob Carmichael from Scene Studio to do the final sort of like layout and design. He's the most talented guy in the industry, and I wish I could work with him more. And I just love everything he does. He does a ton of like, he does the Animal Collective stuff and War on Drugs stuff, and he's the best. Um, so I was pleased to be able to have access to that. Following the album's completion, Stoltzfus signs with the independent label Riven Music, which would release Light Heat on June 25th, 2013. Riven was started by the same guy that ran Ioneer, and he was sort of like my de facto manager for a little while. You know, I had been sort of floating around for a while and finally like sent him this this new material and he's like hey this is really good stuff I, I'm, I'm starting this new venture it's a subsidiary of domino you're already on domino publishing it makes sense for you to put it out here and i was like yeah i have no other options so let's do this it was a new label and he, he had been putting out some pretty cool stuff so you know i figured like yeah let's go for it but when it came out 
we had all these plans of touring. We had all these plans of like going and, you know, really pushing this thing and none of it ever really materialized. And I, it's still a mystery to me why that didn't happen. Um, we only ended up playing like a handful of shows in Philly and New York and that was it. And it just kind of died. It was weird. Like I, you know, having put so much time into this, like I felt like at the very least I would be able to like, you know, having toured as much as I did in the past, I would be able to uh, go out and spend like a couple months touring this and maybe generate some sales, but it just didn't happen. It just kind of like died a very quick death, but I don't really care. <laughs> I'm just happy that I got to make, make it. And that it still, it exists on vinyl, which is like literally my only goal of any record that I make is for it to exist on vinyl. And if that happens then I'm happy. Following a dark period in which his personal and professional life was in turmoil, Quentin Stoltzfus persisted through a number of difficult circumstances and was able to once again make music, the type of music that in his own specific way evokes the celebration of being alive. Considering the path in which it took to get there, that alone makes this album a victory. Beyond that, it's a record that overflows with moments of pop greatness and mystery and represents what one can accomplish through perseverance and the love and support of friends. I'm totally proud of it. It was sort of like a rebirth for me. In many ways, it was like it couldn't have been more different from the Mazarin records, but it was also like sort of a continuation. My process hasn't changed. I still make records the same way that I, I always have, other than the fact that I don't use tape anymore. But in terms of like the whole writing process, I do it all the same. And, you know, I just, I'm, I'm really proud of it. I think it turned out really well. I do wish more people could get turned on to it because, I don't know, it's, it's a pretty strange record. And I love that about it. I love like, how weird it is. And yeah, I stand behind almost everything that I've ever made. There's only a couple songs that I'm like, meh, I could do without those. But yeah, this is uh, every song on this record I stand behind still. Thanks for listening to In Loving Recollection. A very special thanks to Quentin Stoltzfus for speaking with me about this very special record. You can buy and stream Light, Heat, and More from Stoltzfus on the various streaming platforms or at lightheat.bandcamp.com. Seek this stuff out. It'll make you a better person. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter or at inlovingrecollection.com. We'll see you next time. We'll get through this.